It's really difficult to find great executives. Spear Consulting helps organizations find all-star executives and hire the right one using work psychology so you can serve more customers and grow your business. To get a free quote, go to spiritmco.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Virtuous Heroes podcast where we inspire virtuous leadership. Excited to be able to have Sherman uh, Gillums on the podcast today. Sherman, uh, the amount of things that you've accomplished in your career thus far are like <laughs> just uh, immense. Uh, I'm going to just... I couldn't even like memorize all of them, even if I tried. So I'm not going to do that. I'll probably have to read through some of them. But to give you some of the highlights, he's the chief strategy and impact officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, where he oversees the organization's efforts to universalize timely access to appropriate mental health care for underserved communities and destigmatize mental uh, illness. He also, uh, like my uh, nephew, and uh, just so proud of him, uh, David Thomas, is uh, he served in the United States Marine Corps for 12 years and received an honorable discharge at the rank of Chief Warrant Officer too after medical retirement due to severe injury, which I'd love to maybe talk about some of that today. And then lastly, uh, he holds a master's degree from University of San Diego School of Business Administration and completed his executive education at Harvard Business School. So, wow, there's even more to it uh, that I'm sure we're going to be able to dive in today. I was just picking out some of the things from the bio today, Sherman, that uh, that you shared with us. So, so thank you for that. Uh, can you tell us uh, about your story and what got you involved in, in mission work in the first place? I'm always happy to hear about my bio, but what's often missing are the number of people along the way who were, they weren't even stepping stones. They were the rungs that I had to reach toward. And, and in many cases, the hand that was extended to me to pull me up to those tiers of accomplishment. Um, and it's unfortunate because every time somebody reads my bio, I think about all the missteps and all the mentors and all the people for which none of that would have been possible. Um, so my biography is really a testament to the number of people along the way who were there to give me those opportunities to pick me up when I made mistakes. Um, I'm always happy to highlight them as well. Uh, but there's so many, and it's been so long that it'd be, we'd be here all day just for me to list their names. Um, but who I am today is a product of their belief in me in many ways. I, I uh, joined the team at the National Alliance for Mental Illness as the Chief Strategy and Impact Officer, uh, largely because uh, what got their attention was the work I had done in veteran suicide, um, veteran suicide prevention, I should say, uh, but as well as the work we did with caregivers and families who are often the, um, the heroes in the shadows who never get credit for you know the job that we have to do in defending the country, um, but they're the ones giving service members and the veterans the support they need to do that job. But I'm the one who sits in the trenches fighting for those people so that we can uh, actually extend grace and gratitude to people when they go off and serve, uh, because in many cases we miss on that promise. So I'm the one who is hopefully holding congressional representatives and society and media accountable to that promise. Uh, but today I do that through the lens of mental illness. And it's important because mental illness, given what's happened in the country over the last couple of years, has become the thing that binds all of us, right? We all have a brain, we all have a mind, and we're all capable of, of finding ourselves in a place where mental despair hits us even more so now than ever. So I, I joined NAMI 
to become a part of the effort to scale what that organization can do to reach more people. And uh, as I was sharing offline and I've shared with a couple different times on the Virtuous Heroes podcast, you know, I had a quarter life crisis at 22 and attempted suicide myself while going through a really, really difficult season in my life. So I can't, uh, you know, applaud you enough for the work that you're doing at NAMI as well. Um, how is it, as you talked about kind of the pandemic and the current socio-political situation, how has that changed mental illness in this country and how has that impacted NAMI's work? Well, if you think about how divided this country is still in many ways, but how divided we were before the pandemic, you know, there was nothing we were doing that represented some oneness of experience, right? And then when we had to don masks and actually begin to think about, boy, if we neglect this population over here, it could impact me. If, if they stay sick or if they don't have access to care or if, so it became this collective hardship that illustrated just how bound we are to each other. I mean, we all breathe the same air. We all go to the same place when our lives are over, but that in between, for some reason, we just don't get that we're not on this big ball that God has created alone. We're here and in many cases affected uh, when we neglect certain populations. And so the way it's changed NAMI's mission, uh, it's, it's created an imperative around understanding cross-culturally what needs are going unmet and how do you reach people who typically in many health systems don't get the access or quality of care they need to be healthy. Well, in this case, it could have consequences that extend beyond. So, uh, so it changed hopefully in many ways, the way we think about our own uh, safety and well-being as being part and parcel of someone to our left and our right who may not be doing well. And at some point, it, it will have a domino effect on, on how we live our lives. So I think it's changed the way we view ourselves as citizens of this, of this globe, um, as having a responsibility to our fellow human being so that we in turn aren't hurting our own survival and existence. Hopefully that's, that's what it's done. You know, um, I don't see enough of it, but I do see the sense that we're not, we're not able to fight this alone. Yeah. My, um, my sister, Julie McDevitt, who's been on one of the uh, first couple of episodes on this podcast owns a, a therapy practice in the Western suburbs of Chicago. And they've actually exploded growth. Um, uh, they're now up to four practices, I think, in their fifth year of, of being a, an organization, uh, mainly due to people being able to, you know, through the pandemic, uh, you know, looking to be able to seek um, um, refuge or just help with some of the, uh, you know, the anxiety and fears and worries that they're having in the middle of it. So, um, yeah, I can, uh, I can only imagine how that's also driven demand further for the work that you guys are doing as well. It has indeed. And, and as you said, um, it's made us all hopefully more empathetic about the plight of others who don't have a voice and who can't give words to this suffering. Uh, maybe because we have endured this hardship, we'll have a better understanding of what that means. And, and, and perhaps many more of us will become advocates rather than opponents for one another. Yeah, so what have been some of the challenges that you've seen in your work? Well, part of the challenge is the abrupt shift. Um, 
we see across the work paradigm, right? A lot of us are working out of our homes now. Um, the great thing is, you know, we're forced to be more authentic at work, but the challenges have a lot to do with how we continue to evolve in this new reality in which we're living that changes the way we access talent in the work pool. It changes the way we set standards of accountability. You know, how do you monitor somebody's performance and help them grow when you've never met them, right? It's hard to have relationships through the virtual platform, although it's been effective. Um, that's not how many people were meant to interact um, when you can only see their, you know, the top half of their profile. So it creates tensions that run along, um, you know, how we interact, how we, how we see each other. Um, we can almost misrepresent who we are now a lot easier because we don't have to show up in person. So you have a harder time developing a bond with somebody when you don't know the person fully. Um, and I see that I see that happening in in the workspace. I see employees who now feel like um, I don't want to go back into the office. I don't want to go into workspaces and have to put on a mask. I want to sit at home and do what I've been doing. The problem is when you serve people in certain ways, police officers can't do that. You know, there are certain occupations where you still have to be a human being. Um, and, and that's the case in nonprofit work. You know, you still have to show up and be a human being because some people don't have a choice. Everybody doesn't have Wi-Fi and you're going to miss a whole lot of people. So it's really just us uh, adapting to what may be a new zeitgeist that's evolving. I don't know yet because we're still in it. Uh, but the problems are uh, our ability to adapt to that and, and how that shapes expectations going forward, especially kids who are having a different education experience than you and I had when, when we were young. Yeah, the uh, other thing that comes to mind is, you know, uh, Spirit Consulting, the uh, consulting arm of the the day job that that funds the Ministry of the Virtuous Heroes podcast. We are a fully remote organization. And uh, uh, partially because we had already gone kind of virtual in the middle of the pandemic, but then also because recognizing that as we we opened up basically like looking across the United States for talent, it just increased the talent pools of, of P of uh, the junior consultants that we were looking to hire. And uh, so that's great. But, you know, similar to what you're saying there is ultimately that is a struggle where, you know, how do you, how do you cultivate those, those relationships and trust on a virtual basis. So we, we try to do things like, you know, meeting with, uh, you know, our, into, uh, uh, just having one-on-one -on -one meetings outside of just the work talk for building relationships on a regular basis. But in addition to, we do two retreats per year where we all get together as a company to spend time together in person. And I think exactly what you said, like in, in December, we got together in San Diego and it, it definitely helped our organization push forward that much further just from being able to spend a week together of things that probably would have taken us a year for us to accomplish from like trust and relationships that we built in a week that probably would have taken us a year if we were continuing to just stay as a remote organization. So definitely on that. And then as you mentioned about like the youth, I mean, yeah, they're, you know, it's like, they're already like so far ahead of us as it relates to technology. My seven-year-old and nine-year-old sons are just blowing my, I'm like the one who's like sitting there on my phone, like beep, bump, bump. Like I can't compute things. Like, oh dad, let me just show you how to do it. Like do, 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 do. All good to go. So yeah, they're already just 
way beyond what we ever could thought, uh, you know, possible. And I think uh, I heard someone recently say that, you know, our ceilings are their floor. And so love to, yeah. to be able to see the way that they're going to be able to, you know, take that further. But yeah, to your point of, of, you know, like there are, there, while there's some benefits to being able to be remote, you know, at the end, I think that in consulting, we've also really suffered as well from those client relationships where a lot of those deeper conversations outside of just, you know, doing the work happen over dinner and where a lot of companies have kind of like the shutdown policies of, of not wanting to meet at this time, et cetera, it gets harder to, to be able to have those conversations. So yeah, so thank you for sharing on that as well, Sherman. Uh, you know, before we dive into kind of the virtue category, wanted to ask, you know, in your own journey, what have been some of the the vices that you've had to overcome in order to be the leader that you are today? I, I'm always happy to answer that question because I don't look at it as a deficiency. I look at it as a growth opportunity in many ways, and the one growth opportunity that remains constant for me is this need to guard against um, pride and arrogance. You know, even as a U.S. Marine, they're, 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 that, that fierce pride becomes part of the marketing of the identity of an individual when you wear those dress blues or wear the camouflage uniform. But it, it does instill a sense of entitlement in people, especially when you're young and giving, given positions of leadership and privilege um, and the, the ability to to influence people's lives in a way, whether that's your employees or the public, and you develop a, a healthy ego around that. And um, and I think that I've I've learned the hard way that in order to be good as a leader, um, it's never about what I've done in my own right. It's about how good I made other people, and I have to constantly guard myself against those vices because you deal with people with big egos. You deal with people who have a you know, an, an exaggerated sense of themselves. And we're talking about politicians in many cases or people who have made a lot of money. So they feel like that, you know, that somehow uh, accrues to them, you know, a higher sense of who they are. Um, and it's hard to be in a room with people like that and not, not have that big ego kick in yourself. So I constantly battle with reminding myself that at the end of the day, I'm just a dad to my four daughters and a husband to my wife. Um, and I'm just Sherman to the people that know me. Um, I'm not this suit or, or even the title of any type. I mean, I'm a human being who's flawed in many ways. So, um, but I have to consciously guard against that because it's even in my quest to be noble in my pursuits and stand up for people and speak truth to power. Sometimes you have to swell up pretty big to get the confidence to do that. And if it, and if it goes to your head, it can take you down dangerous roads if you forget who you are. Um, I've learned that lesson the hard way in, in very real ways, um, and, and I respect uh, what it means to to look at myself as a person who is growing, even at this fairly mature stage of my career. Hmm. And do you? Th I mean, is this something that you struggled with your whole life, or do you feel like? It was kind of that work that you had done in the Marines as you excelled within that body of work that kind of, you know, pumped up that, that uh, you know, kind of the viewpoint that you had on self. It's, it's, it's a pretty counterintuitive situation that happens to a lot of people. It's actually the opposite. It's because I came from an earlier point in my life where I felt like I had no power. 
Um, I couldn't hit back against bullies because I wasn't big enough. I wasn't strong enough. I, I hated feeling like, you know, I didn't have the power to overcome what was reducing me. And so becoming a Marine was a way to express um, a, a sense of power. Um, and I find, and I, and I referenced it being more common because as a drill instructor, I trained recruits for three years, about 600 young men. And a lot of them shared that same sense of I'm looking for something bigger to be. I'm looking to get that power that I don't have right now. And this title and this uniform is a pathway to doing that. The problem is it can become like a runaway train and you take it too far. And because it's not a healthy sense of self, it's almost like you need to exaggerate in the opposite direction what you felt before. Um, then you can kind of lose yourself in that, in that power and then forget what it was like for you to be on the receiving end of the bully. You become the bully in many ways. And you hear that term all the time, hurt people, hurt people. Well, sometimes you'll become the thing that you, you despised and, and, and railed against by becoming more consumed with power than the ability to make the world better so that people don't experience what you went through. So I think in many ways, no, I had to almost swing entirely in the opposite direction to become the person I became who then would get lost in this idea of power and ego. Um, and then hopefully, you know, those people who cared about me would help bring me back into into balance. So what says you, Sherman, to, you know, any any leaders that are listening to this podcast today and they are themselves struggling with pride nowadays? Are there any, I guess, tangible things that you think that that you've been able to do in your life that have really helped you to, to stay grounded? I learned to get up after falling on my face. And I think the one thing that helped me navigate that learning journey was being accountable for the decisions I made. Like really, really, really just saying, you know what? I put myself here, nobody else. You know, maybe there were other factors involved and other variables that I didn't control, but my making this decision is how I got here. And I'm the only one that can own it enough to turn it into a positive. Right. Nobody's going to make you learn. You have to learn it yourself. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I was ready to own my decisions consciously. That didn't mean I was ready for all the other stuff that would come. But that one thing became the switch between my readiness for an opportunity because I had done a lot on my resume versus an opportunity because I was prepared for. It. And they're two totally different things. You could do a lot of things and think that that entitles you to an opportunity but it's really about what are you prepared for looking forward? It doesn't matter what you did in the past. So for young leaders who are really looking to make that next step up, it's, it's like your readiness is, is, is based on um, the accountability that you're willing to carry as a pack on your back full of bricks and accept that you are a perfect being who may make, this, make mistakes, but your example is what makes you a leader, your ability to come back from that, not your title, not what you've done in your bio. It's your readiness to be accountable for every aspect of um, something that happens that you can link back to a decision that you made. And it starts with that, really. It sounds pretty abstract, but when you make enough mistakes, you, you start to see a correlation between making mistakes and recovering and, and having people trust you more because of that and being the type of person that always looks for a scapegoat. And maybe the, the opportunities don't come as much because 
seasoned leaders see that. They see that more than they see what's on your resume. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing on that, Sherman. Um, so now that we're we've tackled the uh, the vice side, let's skip to the other side of the fence. What virtues do you feel like you've been naturally endowed with that you flow in? I thought about this question from the perspective of of whether I've mastered anything, and I think that if I had to say I've mastered anything um, on the virtue scale, it's it's that sense of charity but I will contextualize it as a sense of charity from a perspective of selflessness, not privilege, or I have this power to give somebody something because I choose to give it to them. Um, it's almost like I owe because somebody did that for me. You know, that, that virtue is I owe, I have a responsibility to pay it forward because I wouldn't be here. And I'm, I'm, I'm messing with life's design by not doing my part to do the same thing. Because somebody could have just said, I'm not going to demonstrate charity in the, in, in the case of Sherman at this point, and I'd be a different person. And it feels like because I've had this the blessing of having people care about me when perhaps I didn't deserve it in many ways, um, I, I owe life, society, and, and just, you know, it's just our nature to, you know, to be, uh, do what's in our best interest. And I feel doing that is in my best interest to carry it forward. So, I would say that virtue, if I had to point to one, there may be others where I could pull pieces, but the, the sense of selflessness is also coupled with uh, responsibility to keep your ego in check. You know, they're almost like, you know, they're together to be selfless. You have to, ha you have to, you know, hold your ego in check. Um, so there's a relationship there between what I thought was my vice or what I still think could be my vice and what I also consider my, uh, perhaps my greatest virtue. It's interesting that you you talk about your charity and selflessness as as something that you feel like is is almost like a calling based off of the way that people have poured into your life. And I know when we were talking offline that you had mentioned that you had a pretty unique childhood in that you lost your father at a young age. Is that where you started to experience mentors coming into your life at an early age to or where did, where did that really come from? Well, before I knew what mentorship was, um, my mother was perhaps my greatest mentor. She didn't have a lot going for her after we lost my dad, uh, but she never gave up on a desire to be something more than, than what she was in that moment. I mean, she dropped out of high school and then had to go back and finish school as a, as a mom after my dad died. Um, she had a lot of, problems with her parents that, you know, kind of became how she parented us and, and continued some of those issues. But, but she always fought for us. She always fought to give us more. Um, so she was my earliest, but then my grandmother and grandfather, my grandfather was a Korean war veteran. My grandmother taught high school English for a career. They were just the stabilizing forces in my life. And, and perhaps the people that it didn't feel like I was missing anything because my dad was never there. He died when I was a year old. So I didn't have any, any baseline to compare it to in terms of where a father would sit. Uh, but then later on, I think some of the mentors that I did have were, uh, you know, church leaders, um, you know, people who would take an interest at some point in my life, whether it was a coach, I had a couple of coaches. And I just think I pieced together 
Um, I, I, it was a blessing, actually, because in, in many cases, it just happened. I don't know how these people came in my path. And, and um, so I embraced that as something beyond my understanding. Um, but there were people who filled that void and they were very good people. I didn't have a lot of bad influences, fortunately, uh, along the way. And that continued even up to this day. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? You want to be happy, but just continue to struggle. One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. A charity I've grown to love, River of Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. Imagine how that make you feel, knowing that you're helping feed children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit riverlightchicago.org. Again, riverlightchicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. Yeah, I think about, um, you know, one of mine has also been on our podcast. Uh, his name's Russ Bratelli. And uh, when his wife got uh, really had postpartum depression uh, after their second uh, child's birth, and he ended up leaving uh, the Northern Trust um, to to basically, you know, be able to take on nonprofit work to be able to have more of a quality of life. And uh, the guy has been food rescuing over a million year, over a million meals a year for the homeless. Just an amazing man. But uh, we we got introduced maybe like five six years ago in the peak of uh, a really nasty divorce that I was going through. And, you know, probably a, a very dark season of, of my adult's life. And uh, he just made it a quest of his to, to make sure to touch base with me. And we have lunch, you know, once a week. And it's like, it's something so simple as that to just like be constant and, so, you know, be that guiding star in someone's life. And, and you know, and, and I recognize now, like, I think I probably of of any of the people listening to this, Sherman, I think I this is really resonating with me because I'm just thinking about like I, I there are people in my life that I, I feel like I've been kind of like put in that position of mentorship. And I would love to say like I've done it as naturally, like as Russ has been able to do for me. But the truth is like I am self I'm I'm selfish and I and I don't I don't flow in as much as charity and selflessness. And so it is something that I have to like work at um in order to, you know, be a constant and, and be able to like follow up with these people. You know, my wife of the fivefold ministry, I, I really identify as an apostle where my wife is more of a pastor. So she is also kind of gifted with that ability to always be like checking in on people, calling them, making sure they're good where I'm just like always just kind of like getting visions on, on organizations and, and just like working towards building instead of just like focusing on the people component. So, uh, you know, I think that really resonates with me. So thank you for sharing that. What do you, what advice do you have for me or for others that are, you know, hearing this and, and, um, yeah, just kind of like thinking about the fact that maybe there's been some gaps in our ability to uh, raise up and lift up others that we've been called to in our lives. Well, the first advice is um, is just know who you are and embrace who you are. I mean, if, if you're not built for certain ways of interacting with people, you can't fake it. Uh, I can't even look at somebody who mentored me and say, I want to be just like them because there were differences in the way they were composed that I couldn't be. And I would, I would be 
a, uh, an imposter. You know, I don't want to be a watered down version of somebody I admire. I just want to admire them and see them in their true light and then just hope that I can be better. Um, but I've, you know, as I, as I thought about this interview, um, one of the questions that naturally comes up is how do you know when you've arrived? You know, how do you know when you're, you've hit that level of virtue uh, or, or that characterization as a virtuous leader? And the answer is, you know, other people decide that. You don't get to decide. You don't get to, you know, you're looking at other people and you're deciding in your mind whether that person is that person. But they're not thinking about that. They're just trying to be good people. You know, and they may have people that they aspire to emulate that they can't be like. So you don't see that flaw, but they see that flaw in themselves. Just be yourself and just know that when you're stepping out on faith and with goodness, um, it's almost like you bring in the ego to say, now I've got to fold it to fit and look a certain way. No, just be yourself. Don't try to make it something more than what you're capable of doing naturally and in line with your character and, and your spirit. Um, and it'll come. It'll it'll come on its own. And, and and people will let you know when they've seen the virtue in you. That's why if if anybody asks me, you know, about mastering a virtue or whether I'm virtuous, I'm a work in progress because I, I don't ever want to feel like I've hit the point where I've arrived because then that means the world's going to change and I can't keep up. I miss something. You know, I've got to see something in a way that helps me adapt to different expectations. So um, and I'm always looking to people who consider me a mentor, whether it's formalized and then ask or whether they just adopt me as a mentor to tell me how I'm doing. Like, what am I, what could I be doing better? Uh, and, and opening yourself up to that will then make it about you, not some, um, you know, prototype that you, you, you kind of fancy yourself being at some point. So the gentleman you named, he's in his own right, the right leader for you. And you're going to be the right leader for other people because of who you are, not something that you've added into your, you know, your toolbox. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that's goal there of just being who you are and then trusting, knowing that, you know, all we are really called to do is to plant the seeds, but then there's someone else that's, <laughs> that's doing the watering and being able to, to grow others in that way. So, so that's, that's excellent. And definitely, you know, uh, just helps kind of put that into context of thinking about, you know, the ways that we're, we have strength. And yeah, it is funny to, I, I didn't really think about that, even just, you know, having you communicated that about, you know, as you think about, you know, being, you know, titling yourself as a virtuous leader. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's great of like, do you recognize that, that that it's it's never like a place of of like oh well i'm arrived and now i'm just a virtuous person like no i you know at any given point i feel like people could you know stumble upon chris gomez and be like oh that's not so virtuous and and, uh, it is it is really a, a journey and being able to always be like recognizing that there's always that opportunity to continue to progress and grow in that way so what advice would you give to up and coming leaders who have interest in managing a national uh, nonprofit organization someday? I've always said that the best leaders, not just workers, volunteers, but if you want to lead, you're essentially leading a mission. So it's not a job. People who know me hear me say all the time, I don't do it for the income. I do it for the outcome. And you can make a lot of money leading, you know, a top nonprofit. And I've, I've been able to take care of my family. Um, but, but that was beside the point. And to answer your question, from where does that spirit 
of a desire to lead come from? You know, what have you been through? How can you tie in who you are and your lived experience to this work that you want to do? And I say that because I tell people all the time, whether you were at some point suicidal, uh, a survivor of domestic abuse, somebody who, you know, is living with the trauma of a sexual assault, whether you were an inmate and you did something that, that you were held accountable by the law, um, there are a lot of people out there who are living that, but haven't quite found a place or a balance to become productive or to feel whole again. And you could be that. Take what happened to you and roll that up into a desire to be a part of a mission. And that's the best, you know, aligning your experience with the work is the best way to really shine as a leader uh, for an organization that has that mission. Um, and and who, who's the best expert? you know, in, in, in the type of work that's, that nonprofits do, who's a better expert than somebody who reflects the constituency that you're trying to serve. And being, you know, pulled from that constituency keeps you in touch with the people um, enough to know what impact really means, not how much you raised that year, not how many people accessed your program, but how did it change somebody's life? Well, if you understand that firsthand, what it takes to, to, to have that effect you become the best leader that organization could hope for. So look for organizations that you share, you know, values with and the principles, like speak to you as a human being and then look to get involved in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that I couldn't get involved in, you know, Susan G. Coleman, you know, breast cancer advocacy that because I have daughters. I had, you know, I could I could squint and say, OK, I see myself in that. But I think I'm, I'm really more cut out for um, organizations that serve people that were like me so that I can I can never see myself as apart from uh, what the impact needs to be in my leadership position. Yeah, I think that's gold. And I think I might also contribute to that, that as you get involved in mission based work, you're going to enter in thinking about, you know, changing lives. And it's your life that ultimately is the most yeah. radically affected and blessed. Yeah. And I'm, and yeah. I'm sure that from your own experience of the work that you've done, it's just, you know, God has a way of being able to bring us into this mission-based work. And it's like, we're always being formed. And there's yeah. another, there's another opportunity that's down the road that you're being prepared for. But, you know, as you're walking through the fire, you don't even realize it. And, and I think that's great though, too, of what you're saying of like, just, just be able to to go off and you know like where your crosses have been in your life mm -hmm. that can be your platform for ministry and that's where ultimately by being able to you know get healed and oftentimes maybe it's also part of the healing journey of going off and being able to you know help others in that because uh it, it's you know oftentimes like a, an upside down kingdom where, where, you know, those that are giving are receiving. So, well, and what you're really saying, uh, as, as I'm interpreting it is you're, you're really finding purpose in your suffering and you can look at what happened to you as not, you know, the notion that God has forsaken you. And believe me early on, I'm thinking to myself, what did I do to deserve this? Like, what, how am I going to get out of this? Like, why did this happen? And you really feel forsaken in those moments. But when you evolve from that, then you look back and you look at people who might be somebody who might be suicidal and you totally get it. I know what you're I'm not saying don't kill yourself. 
But I am telling you, you have not been forsaken. What's happening to you is, is normal. It's recoverable. I'm here to walk with you through it because believe me, I have been there. I know what it's like to say, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so it's not even about my title at that point. It's really about being able to immerse myself. We call it jumping back into the hole and showing that person who's in the hole how we got out. But we have to get back to the hole. We have to get dirty. And and when that happens, then you say, okay, that's why I fell in in the first place. That's that's why I fell in, because I wouldn't know the way out if I didn't fall in and feel that sense of hopelessness. So um, I took from what you just said. You, you give words and you find purpose in what seemed like suffering and seemed like being forsaken uh, that turns into the thing that makes you a superhuman being because you can deliver somebody else from that. So I think we've, Sherman, I think we've danced around it, but I guess I just wanted to hear directly, uh, where did you fall into the hole and why does the, the work that NAMI is doing like resonate with you? Well, I would say the whole can be described <laughs> in many ways in my life that were those low moments that I felt were necessary for me to get to where I am. Um, I was injured in Marine Corps in a vehicle accident that was totally random. I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I, I thought maybe I'd done enough wrong that that's why it happened. You know, like this whole idea of karma. Um, and so in the crash where I almost died, um, I, I was, thinking to myself, if this has got to be the rest of my life, then I'm going to have a short life, you know, because I'm not, I'm not doing this for a long time. Um, so the first hole was just the fact that I was a mortal. I was going to have something happen that happens to a lot of people, by the way. I mean, it happens to kids. It happens to people who also didn't deserve it. It's not about deserving it. So for me to look at it like I deserved it meant that this kid who was five, you know, when something similar happened, deserved it in some way. It doesn't work like that. So the first hole, though, was not even that. It was allowing myself to be consumed by the misery. Um, alcoholism is, a, is, a, is an aspect of military life that's just there. It's been there for generations, and I was certainly uh, lost in that, but I'd fallen even deeper because I also self-isolated in many ways and went out of my way not to be around people. Um, I would sleep all day and stay up all night. Um, and, and the only way I could do that was to drink myself into, you know, unconsciousness. That way I never had to be accountable for that drinking. I didn't, I didn't have anybody bothering me about it. So, um, but it, I think I finally opened up and, and saw myself, um, uh, just, I think I just casually encountered a, I was in a, a support group, in fact, with some veterans and I heard them talking about some things and I asked the facilitator at the end about, what does depression look like? Because I don't know what depression is. I don't feel depressed, but I had all the markers, all the classic markers and then some. And she asked me to just talk to her about what was going on. And from that moment, um, it became obvious talking to her because I could then think about things differently. But before that, I was comfortable in a hole. It didn't look like a hole to me. It's like, I want to be here. Leave me alone. Hmm. So I would say that was the first one. And then after that, if there were other holes that had a lot to do with struggling through trying to rebuild relationships with my mom, um, not forgiving people that I had become angry with through that process for not being there and letting that anger carry for years, you know, and then having people die or, or something happen and I never got to reconcile it. And then at work, it was, you know, again, be, being that entitled individual who 
you know, could do no wrong. Uh, the hole would be when I would lose people who, uh, who lost faith in, 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 in me. Um, and I've gone back and since repaired just about all of those relationships, but it was in the moment hard to see me as anything other than a victim. Like all this stuff was happening to me and I'm tired of it. I'm going to fight back again. I was a kid who was bullied. I'm going to fight back, you know, cause I'm a Marine. Um, and as it turned out, my best self was the person I was when I was stripped away of all of that. But that stripping wouldn't have happened unless I fall in, I fell into those holes and, and I'm glad it happened. Hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, as you've seen that, you know, just sounds like you have a ridiculous, uh, gifting also within empathy and you can meet people in, in darkness and a lot of the pain that they're going through because of having to walk through that journey. Now, obviously in the midst of that fire, it's never fun to be going through like yeah. the suffering itself, but the, the blessing that comes from it and being able to connect with people on such a deep level is incredible. And I'm sure uh, is why you're, you know, you've only continued to, you know, just, you know, beeline in, in growth in, in the work that you're doing. So, so thank you for your vulnerability and uh, sharing there too. So Sherman, what, uh, what lies ahead for you? Well, I'm currently pursuing uh, a doctor of education at the, the University of Dayton, a Maryland, a Marinist institution. And um, my, uh, my graduate degree was at the University of San Diego, which was also a Catholic university. Um, but education systems that, that embed principles into how they um, teach students about the world is important to me. So I, I picked University of Dayton for that reason. Um, but I want to be a, a, a teacher on some level like my grandmother was, and, and whether that's teaching college students, teaching high school students. Uh, but I think the added emphasis would be students who, um, who don't have the privilege to, to get into the institutions like Harvard, like Yale, like Duke, and they'll never have access to people who have navigated those, plate, those spaces. I want to be that one teacher or instructor for kids who absolutely have no shot, but for maybe something I can do to give them that shot. So I'm hoping that after, you know, I wrap up this journey of advocacy and, and being in the arena uh, in, on Capitol Hill and all the stuff I'm doing now, uh, that I can that I can settle into uh, a space where young people with their, their wide-eyed curiosity um, need good people to you know, fill their, their minds up with something positive and, and, and fulfilling that'll benefit society. So that's what I hope lies ahead for me, God willing. Um, but we'll see. Mm. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's take that to prayer. After I finish up, if you want to pray for an impartation for the spirit of pride to be broken off of our, our listeners today, and then also for an endowment of an increase of charity and selflessness, that'd be awesome. But Father God, we, uh, we just lift up uh, Sherman and we also lift up our listeners right now. And, and we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for some fellowship in the middle of our day. Father, I pray, uh, Lord, you're the giver of good gifts. And uh, you, you are all things good. And so I can see this goodness that you put inside of Sherman. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to walk with him in the same way that Moses walked with you face to face, uh, that you would walk with Sherman in the same way. 
and that Lord, that you would open up all the doors, all every door that needs to be opened for him, Lord, to that this desire that you put to teach and to inspire the youth, Lord, that you would open the doors that would lead him to that destiny, because this is a desire that you put on his heart, and it and it is good, Lord. And uh, Father, we uh, we just uh, lift up uh, Sherman's ministry and the advocacy work that he's doing now, as well as his uh, his children and his wife. That Lord, that you would radically bless uh, bless his family and his work, so that other people would just be so they would see your goodness through the blessing, Lord, and and desire to have the same level of intimacy and relationship that uh, Sherman has with you, Father. And Father God, I come to you as a humble servant with uh, a spirit of, uh, of grace and humility with the hopes that the words that we were able to impart here will help to uh, put an individual who needed to hear them on a different path, on a path that uh, aligns with your favor and aligns with your, your hopes and destiny for us as your children. Uh, God, we know that Hope can only be seen through eyes that have cried in many cases, and the tears and the pain are sometimes necessary to understand what it means to be uh, in your service. Uh, I do that every day with the hopes that I've done well. I'll continue to do that, and I thank you for this ministry that I've been provided to offer thoughts uh, and hopes that are consistent with your words and your desire for us. Amen. Awesome, Sherman. I was, uh, you know, as you were just praying, I felt like the Lord gave me the image of Big Hero 6. And uh, I've had another friend uh, just share some spiritual intelligence in this way or through the image of just like the way that God sees you. Like that you have this like big, big uh, robot uh, in that cartoon. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but um, it's an animated movie. And in the movie, like, you know, all of these robots, I forget if they're like, if they're well the 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 robot's specific intention is for healing but he ends up being like this amazing friend to this kid who's so desperate in need i feel like the lord is just you know because obviously i could tell that you're a pretty big guy but like in the same way that you you hold this big frame and that people like they they might be intimidated with you like as they get closer into your inner circle they recognize that you are healing and that your presence alone brings healing into the room. And so, yeah, I just, uh, Sherman, I just bless you with that, that that, that would only just continue to grow and, and uh, that that gift would only continue to keep refining, that as you interact with people, that you would only just continue to bring healing into the world that so desperately needs it at this time. I receive that. Thank you so much. Thank you. No worries. Well, thank you for uh, watching us on the Virtuous Heroes podcast where we inspire virtuous leadership and uh, yeah, many blessings to you, Sherman. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> Just joking. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day.